It's Wednesday, July 8th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today is the Chief Investment Officer, Andy Cross. Good to see you. Chris Hill, good to see you as always. Thanks, man. Uh, we're going to talk real estate investing. We're going to see where consumer is uh, spending is going, but we're going to start with retail. Shares of Levi's down 8% this morning after second quarter sales fell more than 60%. Uh, there's a lot going on with Levi's, Andy, uh, including some layoffs. We'll get to those. But you know, this was one of those situations where the online sales just could not make up for the fact that Levi's stores were closed for roughly 10 weeks. Yeah, Chris, online sales, their e-commerce business was up 25%. And the, actually, in May, the the run rate, the, the May growth was up 80% year over year. So, it was some really nice acceleration. This is a quarter, by the way, that captured March, April, and May, for the most part, all of those months. So, really the heart of the, of the COVID pandemic. But overall, revenues fell 60% year over year during that quarter. Uh, most of their stores were closed, uh, I think, for up to 10 weeks at a time there. Uh, so, like you said, the e-commerce sales just really couldn't make up for the um, for the lack of, of the regular retail sales. Um, lots of just worries about what was happening at Levi's. They entered the, the year uh, actually doing doing pretty pretty well uh, they were pretty excited um, that their 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 uh, CEO Chip Berg had talked about how the, the the beginning of the year looked pretty positive but then obviously the covid pandemic really hit them and then they, they rang up a net loss of 364 million most of that was 242 million due to a restructuring and in inventory costs and other costs tied directly to the, the the pandemic so the good news is now that most of their stores I think north of 90 percent are now back open however I, one of the things that has uh, many of us worried is just that the resurgence of some of the cases, the COVID-19 cases we're seeing around the country in the U.S. with cases spiking um, on a per day level, has them, has Levi's looking at up to 40 of their stores and wondering, hey, do we have to kind of reshut those down for the time being, similar to what Apple did. So um, they suspended their share repurchase. They did pay a dividend, but they 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 are not going to pay that in the third quarter, uh, and so and they suspended their guidance for the year. So uh, tough times at Levi's and and, and other retailers. Um, then, you know, this is a stock, Chris, that came public about a year ago, a little over a year ago. Uh, they they raised um, their money at seventeen dollars stock price, and it had a really nice day one jump up to I think as high as twenty three, and now the stock's back down to thirteen. So a really tough ride for Levi's shareholders over the past year. Uh, and laying off somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% of yep. corporate positions. So that's one more cost-saving measure they're, uh, they're trying to pull in terms of levers. Um, you know, the 25% e-commerce uh, jump, that, you know, under normal circumstances, that would be seen as really good. But we've seen plenty of other retailers come out, Andy, and maybe their online sales don't make up for stores being closed, but they come a lot closer. We've seen any number of retailers, not just the, the, the big ones like Target and, and Walmart, but you know smaller niche players where their e-commerce is in some cases doubling. So, I mean, that's, that's one thing that Levi's has to do an even better job of over the next six to 12 months. Chris, you got that right. So, it's 15% of their sales. That's up from 5% last year, but only 5%. So, 5% was really e-commerce. So, so, unlike, I think, so many of the other companies you mentioned, Walmart, for example, with what Doug McMillan's been doing in Target and um, Home Depot and so many of these companies that are making these big investments in, in, the, in the omni-channel um, efforts. 
to be able to sell directly to consumers through their channels online as well as the retail, uh, whatever strategy it may be. Levi's obviously has a lot of work to do, and 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 they're 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 talking all the right language now. But you know, I think there's some 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 hesitations and some doubts out there. I mean, the Haas family is still the largest shareholder in the Levi's um, uh, shareholder base by far um, across their their family. They own large amounts of stake, so uh, so they have a very stable shareholder base to maybe wither weather this storm. But you know, on the margin, uh, it's you know. The, the, the cost reduction, Chris, you mentioned from the 700 positions or 15% of their workforce, that maybe is a savings of 100 million per year. That's about 2% of their annual cost structure. So, so it's it's meaningful on the margin, I think, but it's not like game changer there. Really, they got to make sure they have a new strategy for how to sell their goods. Brooks Brothers announced it is filing for bankruptcy. It's a private company, but a storied brand. And this is just one more page in the book of what a brutal year it has been for retail. And for context, Andy, 2018, there were 5,700 store closings for the entire year. Already in 2020, more than 8,700 store closings. That doesn't even include um, whatever uh, damage is going to fall out from the Brooks Brothers bankruptcy. And uh, it's it's just... Uh, it's just a brutal, brutal time for retailers. Yeah, I mean, this is a company that's been around for more than 200 years. I think they just celebrated their 200-year anniversary a couple of years ago. Um, Levi Strauss has been around since the 1850s, so it's not like the, the Brooks Brothers have been around longer than they have, or at least versions of them. Um, yes, yeah, so they, they they filed the they made an announcement that they're going to file for Chapter 11, 11 uh, bankruptcy protection. They have more than 500 stores. Uh, I think more than 200 in the U.S. So it's a it's, it's a large footprint. But you know, I think the the what we've been seeing over the last few months for them is just the continued struggle. The the, the COVID-19 has just really elevated the continued struggle that Brooks Brothers has had with just the shifting tastes. They've had basically Chris um, technology and anthropology and biology working against them for the past couple of years. And what I mean is, as we have become more and more technology savvy and we become more and more um, willing to explore the way that we buy our goods and use retail experiment, uh, uh, um, re- retail um, t- strategies, as we just mentioned with some of the great companies that are really pushing this, um, we're just we're buying clothes so much differently than what we did than when I first bought my Brooks first Brooks Brothers shoot suit back in the 1990s, right? So it was like you go to the store, you get tailored. Oh, Brooks Brothers, such a great brand, high quality, U.S. made. It's just going to be the you can't go wrong with Brooks Brothers. Well, that's just shifted. That was 200 or that was 20 years ago. 200 years. That was 20 years ago, and technology has just basically um, pushed that to uh, new ways of of shopping. Um, be it um, those companies or companies like Stitch Fix. Or, or even Trunk Club at, at, at one point. And then from a biology and anthropology perspective, we're just changing the way that we are, are, are um, uh, dressing ourselves, right? So we're at home now with the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, I have shorts on, T-shirt, and we're very casual at The Motley Fool. Chris, you always look relatively nice. I think you have a T-shirt on today. I am also in shorts and a T-shirt today. Shorts and a T-shirt. Usually you're, you're, you're in a nice collared button shirt. Um, but but if you're a lawyer or, or, or an investment professional, perhaps that you may have worn a suit before, in the past 20 years ago, like I did, you're not doing that anymore. And even if you are doing it, even if you are dressing somewhat, you 
have to dress up a little bit. Maybe it's a little bit more um, of a professional environment, for example. You're meeting with clients. You're certainly not buying the number of suits that you had before, the number of dress clothes that you had be, that you had to do before. And so instead of buying like two or three, or, or maybe uh, two or three, maybe you're only buying one. And that, that one that you're not buying or that tie that you're not buying, that's all high margin um, business for a company like Brooks Brothers. So it's just been a real struggle, I think, over the last few years. Um, it was bought out. Um, Marks and Spencer had, had bought them, had acquired them back in 1988. Um, and then uh, uh, um, uh, an Italian financier um, named Claudio Del Vecchio had, had bought them. Um, he's been a big fan of, of Brooks Brothers over the years. Um, and it just been a struggle, I think, and looking for buyers. Now they're going to explore um, outside um, uh, someone who can buy the brand and can continue on with the Brooks Brothers brand. But um, but the, the the market certainly for for retail and for the likes of those um, companies like Brooks Brothers has certainly shifted, and and this is uh, just the the outcome of of that. Yesterday morning, when I went out for my run, I saw a man in a suit and tie carrying a briefcase, walking to the Metro, and it was like seeing a unicorn. I, I was just like, oh my gosh, I haven't seen one of you in so long. Yeah, you um, just don't, you don't really see it that much these days. So stepping back from Brooks Brothers and Levi's, where, where do you see consumer spending going? Because one other factor in all of this, for all of these businesses, is the fact that somewhat quietly, the savings rate around the world is going up. And as people uh, you know, look to their own personal finances and you know, maybe they're out of a job, even if it's temporary, they're furloughed, whatever, uh, more and more people around the world are saving money at a much higher rate. And that's good for them personally. That's not the kind of um, spending environment that's going to re-stimulate the economy though. Yeah, Chris, I mean, if you look at the US savings rate, um, in the U.S. spending rate, uh, we just saw this massive <clears throat> uh, savings rate. Sorry, we saw this massive jump in the past couple uh, months, right when the when the COVID nineteen pandemic hit. So the savings rate topped out at about thirty two percent two months ago. Now I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of. Um, of back down to 20%, 23% last month. Um, if you look at the consumer spending patterns over the last few months, overall, they've really dropped and that's jumped up the savings rate. So so while our incomes and salaries are relatively kind of flat and a lot of help from the, from the federal government to, to support the economy, um, the consumer spending market, which is as we know, and we talked about consumer spending is such a big part of the U.S. economy, 65, 70% of the U.S. economy, the, the consumer spending patterns have really dropped. So you're seeing this drop. You're seeing these savings rates jump up. You're seeing um, interest rates really low. Uh, so, so the question is, how does this kind of play out over the next few months? Where do consumers spend their money? We are now shifting more and more of our spending patterns, and we're not maybe spending as much as we talked about on um, clothing or more discretionary items like that and really saving for just what we need, um, which might be technology, for example, and spending more money on things like our home office or spending money on what we may use at home as opposed to spending out at a restaurant, which we know restaurants are struggling. So there's going to be this shifting pattern in consumer spending. Overall, the spending levels are now starting to starting to come back a little bit from where they were and how much they dropped off in March. Um, and we have seen this uh, 
um, increase in, in, for example, retail foot traffic, although that just in the past couple of weeks, that started to tail off again, too, with some concerns of some of the COVID-19 cases popping back up again. So it will be very interesting to watch the consumer spending habits because it is such a big part of the U.S. economy. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from James O'Leary, who writes, how much of my portfolio should be allocated towards REITs and other real estate investments since I'm 22 years old? Most advice I've heard uh, indicates I should allocate almost 100% towards stocks since I have a very long investment horizon. However, several recent discussions on Motley Fool podcasts about REIT and real estate investing have me questioning this. Additional quick Google searches say that real estate as an investment has similar, if not greater, returns as stocks. Uh, thanks for the question, James. Great, always great uh, to get questions from the audience. Um, always makes me smile when someone much, much younger than me is already on their investing journey. So great that James is thinking about portfolio allocation and investment allocation to this degree. Yeah, well done to you, James. It is interesting. If you looked at it, I was looking at some of uh, our retirement expert, Robert Brokamp, who we've had on the shows and the podcast and on Motley Fool Answers um, as a host of co-host of Motley Fool Answers. Um, and he, looking through some of the model portfolios, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of 4 to 5%, um, pretty much across the board, you can have in, in real estate investment trusts, trust, those are REITs, and that's from the investment vehicle, that, that investment vehicle, versus owning um, commercial real estate or your home. Um, real estate in general overall over very, very long time periods, whether you're looking at housing or whether you're looking at REITs, tends to perform about the same, if not a little slightly better than stocks if you look at very, very long time periods um, with with the key is with, with lower volatility. Um, I, I think for us, we look at real estate and using REITs as a way to add some diversification to anyone's portfolio, especially if you like dividends, and especially if they're going to be in tax advantage account, and if you're going to reinvest with dividends um, for, for, for many years. Um, I, I certainly think, I, I like the number that Robert had tossed out and has in his allocations, the the 4 to 5% level, somewhere around, around, around that level. Um, we continue to be, and, and I think um, the bread and butter and the success of The Motley Fool has been on, on finding those um, great growth companies that we can hold for many, many years. And I think that's the way to, to continue to um, look, James, since you're just really, um, you have so many years to, to invest, and which is which is fantastic. Um, so <coughs> I wouldn't make it a, a large part of your portfolio, if at all. Um, I would keep it in that in those low single-digit numbers. I'm going to just assume that at the age of 22, James does not own a house or an apartment, a condo, whatever. I'm just yeah. going to assume that. Um, but for people who do own a home, uh, should they consider that as essentially their real estate investment? Like, I don't have any investments in REITs. I don't have any other real estate investments. I do own my home. So, should I? Just think about it's like, well, I've got my investment portfolio and I also have the value of my house. So, therefore, technically, I'm invested in real estate. Yeah, you. I think you can, Chris. I mean, um, I I tend to keep that separate when I think about my when I think about my portfolio and my investable assets. I think of those that are much more liquid. So I tend not to. Uh, 
that the housing market that the, the thing the thing with the the the, the um, physical real estate and owning your house and physical real estate commercial real estate if you if you own those those properties they they tend to be much more less liquid of course so with stocks and even REITs you can you can buy and sell those every day um, which is why I think the volatility is is uh, is a little bit higher uh, in those over time so um, I consider that separate I'm really focused and I, I think for James's case uh, focused on the on the investable assets that that um, a person can invest into into the public markets and 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 have that liquidity and the liquidity advantage. Um, so uh, I wouldn't necessarily um, equate my house as like is my investment. When I think about portfolio allocation, I'm really thinking about those those more liquid investments. Well, and once I get into the home flipping business, then I'm really going to be liquid in a way that well, I'm not. Yeah, now. then you're like Zillow and Redfin. Andy Cross, always good talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about in The Motley Fool, may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you tomorrow.